DiscerningHearts.com presents Beginning to Pray with Dr. Anthony Lillis. Dr. Lillis is an associate professor and the academic dean of St. John's Seminary in Camarillo, California, as well as the academic advisor for the St. Juan Diego House of Priestly Formation for the Archdiocese of Los Angeles. Through the years, clergy, seminarians, religious, and lay faithful have benefited from his lectures and retreat conferences on the Carmelite Doctors of the Church and the writings of St. Elizabeth of the Trinity. He is the author of Hidden Mountain's Secret Garden, A Theological Contemplation of Prayer, as well as numerous other books focused on the spiritual life. In this series of Conversations with Dr. Lillis, we focus on Doctor of the Church, St. Teresa of Avila, and her great spiritual masterwork, The Interior Castle. Beginning to Pray with Dr. Anthony Lillis. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. Anthony, thank you so much for joining me. Well, it's good to be with you, and I'm looking forward to our conversations. This is going to be a very beautiful time. Well, this is a a work by St. Teresa of Avila that we mentioned briefly when we looked at her book, The Way of Perfection. And you said that this particular work was very important to you. It really had touched you, and it was a part of your spiritual experience uh, long ago. Sure. Um, Actually, when I went to the Angelicum, Father uh, Jordan Alman was teaching, and he taught a course that went over a way of perfection, but spent most of the time in this book, Interior Castle. Uh, There was a lecture while he was talking about contemplative prayer and contemplation, mental prayer, in the course of this, and and we'll get to it. I, I think the passage actually is in the fourth mansions. And so we'll, we'll go through, we'll talk about what these mansions are and what the image is that's being used. One of the students in the class said, what is contemplation? What is mental prayer? I had the same question, but it's one of these things that has been talked about every day in a class for weeks on end. And so you would think it would be the most obvious question in the world. And the professor spoke of it as the most obvious question in the world. Like, you know, you don't know. And what the professor didn't realize, the the question of this particular religious, she was a sister, was really the question of everybody in the classroom. You know, what is contemplation exactly? And when she asked this question, when this came up, everybody was kind of waiting for the answer thinking that this was something like only the spiritual athletes kind of knew about and super holy spiritual theologians like Father Jordan Alman knew about them, but that we could know about them, that that seemed an impossibility. And so when he said, well, you know what this is, you do it all the time. You know what I'm talking about, sister. After communion, When you go back to your place, you kneel down and you close your eyes in that silence that you experience. Don't you remember that? That's mental prayer. That's contemplative prayer. When that description emerged, I realized all at once that this was a gift of prayer that I was already familiar with on a practical level. I just never had language for it before. And now all of a sudden I had language. I could call it something. Uh, moreover, it wasn't a kind of prayer that for the privileged few, but this kind of prayer is kind of the norm. 
that mental prayer, contemplative prayer, prayer that draws us into um, a, an awareness of the Lord who's with us in these deep, silent places in our hearts, that this is a normal Christian experience, that many people are blessed with this, that even children are blessed with this. I remember Cardinal Stafford said, uh, talked about his own conversion as a young person, uh, a child uh, in, in the church. He was kneeling down supposedly after communion, the light coming through the stained glass and bathing the altar. He said it, it created impressions of grace in my soul and impressions of grace that never went away. Well, that experience of the young Cardinal Stafford as a, a little boy in the church after Mass, that moment is a moment of contemplative prayer. Uh, we find it also in the lives of other saints. Elizabeth of the Trinity, when she received her first communion, she received a grace very much like this. Her friends saw her so deep in prayer and they wanted her to go away to a party with them. They have, after first communion, these the, a lot of different cakes that you go and eat. And, you know, it's fun fellowship with, for the children and the parents and so forth. And she didn't want to leave the church. And her friend, why don't you want to leave? Don't Why don't you want to come to the party and have something to eat? And Elizabeth said, I am no longer hungry. God has fed me. Mm. She had that sense of being satisfied by the Lord, a, a presence that satisfied and nourished her. And so when we, all of these things are meant to kind of describe the prayer that Teresa of Avila wants us to get to know when she talks about her interior castle or her spiritual castle, it's called uh, either way, it's going to be a journey into the heart and at the center of the heart is the Lord the reason why we're making this journey to the center of the heart is to enjoy his friendship, enjoy a holy conversation with him, to get to know who he is. He's calling to us even right now while we speak. This interior movement of prayer is not something remote from our experience or to be analyzed as if under a microscope or a distant star through a telescope. It's something extremely close to us right now because the Holy Spirit dwells within us. And because he dwells in us by baptism, by our faith and baptism, because he dwells there, he is pulling us into deep places, pulling us into a deeper encounter with God. And that's what Teresa of Avila wants to share with us in the interior castle, because it helped give me some language for the prayer that I was blessed with. It's become a very important uh, book in my own spiritual formation. You know, what's remarkable about this too, Anthony, is that this work would come forward with a whole canon of spiritual writing that's coming out of Spain. Uh, you know, this is a time when the world is being mapped by uh, explorers, and they're they're going around and they're teaching us a new land. And yet these Spanish writers, particularly Teresa, is showing us a map to the interiority of the soul, isn't she? Well, that's a beautiful analogy. It's also something worth reflecting on just a moment because we sometimes we think we look at our times today and we think, that things are so awful, the church seems to be in disarray, the world on the brink of catastrophe, our families and so forth seem to be falling apart in different ways. And 
it's easy to be discouraged and distracted by all of that exterior stuff. At the time of Teresa of Avila, Spain has three fronts going on simultaneously. He's trying to defend Europe against Muslim invasion. This is around the, in the 1570s, and she begins writing this book in 1577. We have the Protestant revolts in the north, where the spiritual teachings of Luther and Calvin have influenced a lot of people to leave the Catholic Church. And so Spain is trying to defend Catholicism and defend the churches from uprisings where priests and religious and churches are getting killed and churches being burned down. And he's trying to reimpose order in Northern Europe. In the New World, just as you said, this is the time it's been about 40 years since Our Lady of Guadalupe's appeared. And in this 40-year period, tens of thousands of people are being baptized every day, the baptizing them in the rivers every day for the next several decades. Uh, it will be the fastest evangelization of a continent that's ever been known. But at the same time, there's different military campaigns and trying to make conditions there livable, trying to bring peace to different warring factions that were in the area. And while this is going on, of course, there's always opportunists and uh, 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 political players who are trying to take advantage of different situations for their own selfish gain. And so the new world's being mapped, but it's not only being mapped, it's being evangelized, but it's not only being evangelism, it's also being exploited all at once. Mm -hmm. And so you have all this tension in the Americas, uh, in the Mediterranean basin with the Islamic uprisings of the 16th century, Protestant revolts in the north. All of this is going on. And Teresa of Avila, you hardly find any reference to any of that in her writing at all. In fact, the response of her own order is, Rather than getting caught up in all these world geopolitical political things and power plays and intrigue, rather than exploit situations, what she calls the church to is back to prayer, back to intimacy with God. And in calling us back to intimacy with God, she began a Carmelite reform. She wanted Carmelites to rediscover the primitive observance of their way of life because that primitive observance led to a deeper, more authentic encounter with the Lord. She wanted to, instead of trying to bring order in the world around her, she wanted souls to discover order in themselves. And she was right that we can't have order in the world until we bring order into our own interior life. If we're always trying to fix things outside ourselves, but inside we're a wreck, Whatever we do on the outside is still going to be erect. The evangelization will always be mired in exploitation, whether we like it or not, because in our hearts we haven't dealt with our own selfish desires. But when you go deep into prayer, grace explodes. And, and when grace explodes in the heart, when, when it begins to take over our interior life, when that the light of God's love shines through us. It's, it doesn't make problems go away magically, but it transforms those problems into moments of grace, moments of encounter with the Lord, moments of liberation. Uh, and so she's leading the charge. And to make it very particular, she begins writing this in 1577 on the Feast of the Holy Trinity. Later that year, 
the papal nuncio who has been kind of her political cover in the church has been promoting her and protecting her reform and trying to advance her teaching, protect the reform from other political powers that want to snuff it out. He dies. When he dies, there's a lot of confusion. This happens over the summertime. There's a lot of confusion. And then a new papal nuncio comes in and his attitude towards Teresa and the reform is that it's an aberration. These women and their friars are completely out of control and they need to be railed in and come under obedience. They haven't been obedient to due authority and they need to get in line and stop all this crazy talk about mental prayer and living life of a more radical poverty and more radical silence. It's just craziness. We need to get back to living regular religious life with vocal prayer and doing what we're supposed to do and satisfying our our obligations. He aligns himself with powers that are thinking the same thing in the Carmelites. And this is the time when John of the Cross will be thrown into prison. This will be the time when Teresa of Avila kind of gets exiled to or confined to the convent of St. Joseph uh, there in Avila. Uh, they they try to elect her as prioress again of the incarnation, the larger monastery that wanted to, uh, that was attracted to her reform. They didn't want her at first, but in 1577 they elect her, and the nuncio and other Carmelite friars annul that election, hmm. and they hold another election, and she gets elected again. And so the friars excommunicate everybody who voted for her and send her away to the convent of St. Joseph. St. John's in in prison in Toledo, it's just a very awful, terrible time in the history of the Carmelite order. And Teresa has been asked to write this book in the midst of this. She, She starts it kind of at the beginning of the summer, into the spring, the Feast of the Holy Trinity. She'll finish it around October but if because of all the interruptions in her life during the writing of this book, they, they say the actual amount of time she spent on this masterpiece was less than two months. So, so, so she wrote this book in a two-month period. And how did she do this? How did she, in this time of all this turmoil, how did she do this? Because in the midst of all this turmoil, it was also a time of great prayer. Throughout the book, you'll see little references to prayer, the deep prayer that she's just encountered. And even though there's all this turmoil and politics and ugly stuff going on in the world, this is also a time of great saints. Shortly before this time was the period of John of Avila and Ignatius of Loyola, now Francis Borgia, Peter of Alcantara, and under Teresa's motherhood, spiritual motherhood, John of the Cross, who ends up being her spiritual director for a little while. There's a lot of saints in Spain right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, who've either just died just prior to this time uh, or and others who are just beginning to discover their life of sanctity, St. John of God. Uh, and this book summarizes in a, many ways the teaching of the time that was going on among all these great saints. She brings it together. In fact, there are people that we know about that we wouldn't know about had she not written about them in her writings, drew from their wisdom to bring it to bear on her own insights to prayer. And who does she write this for? She wrote this for her sisters, and in particular, all the Carmelites. 
in particular, the discalced Carmelites, the Carmelites of her reform. So not so much the sisters in the incarnation. She's exiled in St. Joseph's. It's for her sisters in St. Joseph. Little, powerless, humble, living lives of poverty and silence and asceticism and penance. And she's telling them not to worry about what's going on politically in the church and outside the church and all the turmoil in the world and all the doctrinal controversies. Turn to the Lord in prayer. Turn to his presence. This is the most important occupation we have. And when you do that, God does some beautiful things in the world. We'll return to Beginning to Pray with Dr. Anthony Lillis in just a moment. Did you know that you can obtain a free app which contains all your favorite Discerning Hearts programs? Father Timothy Gallagher, Dr. Anthony Lillis, Archbishop George Lucas, Father Mauritius Fildi, and so many more, including episodes from Inside the Pages, can be obtained on the Discerning Hearts free app. This also includes all the novenas and devotionals and prayers, including the Holy Rosary and Stations of the Cross, the Chaplet of St. Michael, and the Seven Sorrows of Our Lady, all available on the Discerning Hearts free app. Visit the iTunes and Google Play app stores to obtain your free Discerning Hearts app today. A Prayer of St. Ignatius of Loyola Take, Lord, and receive all my liberty, my memory, my understanding, and my entire will, all that I have and call my own. You have given all to me. To you, Lord, I return it. Everything is yours. Do with it what you will. Give me only your love and your grace. That is enough for me. Amen. Hello, my name is Deacon Omar Gutierrez, and I want to ask you to support Discerning Hearts in a special way. We, Chris McGregor, the board, and I all know that not everyone listening can help financially. We know we have listeners from all parts of the world, and we have made a commitment since the beginning to make the truths shared through Discerning Hearts totally free. So while you may not be able to contribute financially, what you can do is certainly pray, but also give us positive reviews on whatever platform you use to listen to us. If it's iTunes, Android, Stitcher, Spotify, however it is that you get these podcasts, or if you're on YouTube and you like our videos, please give us a good rating and write a review. The more good ratings and reviews we get, the higher our profile, and the more listeners will discover us, listeners who may have the means to contribute in the future. Please consider rating us and writing a positive review today. We now return to Beginning to Pray with Dr. Anthony Lillis. It is striking that in the introduction, she talks about that she is going to write this, and I'm doing it because I'm obedient. This is not going to be easy because I'm hurting. I don't feel good. There's, I have too much work. It's such a real person that is laying this all out. But she says, but I'm going to do it because I'm obedient. But I'm writing this even though I have all these other stresses going on in my life. And I 
pray to God that if there's anything that's good that will come out of it, it will be only because of his grace, because it won't be me, because I'm not there. I mean, would you be, is that a fair summation of that little introduction? She really didn't believe that she had a lot of wisdom to offer anyone. Yeah, how about that? (laughs) Even if she wasn't placed under obedience, at the same time, so this tension like, you know, do I really have anything to offer you? Mm -hmm. At the same time, she is maternally concerned for her sisters. She wants to help them find a way to praise God in their lives. And so she is writing out of this kind of maternal concern for them that they be able to realize the reason why they've gone into religious life. Her kind of vivacious personality and and strong will and leadership and maternal presence drew them, and so she feels responsible for them. But the third thing is also true. She is doing this under obedience, and that's one of the reasons she makes the observation that when you do things under obedience, when it seems impossible, obedience makes it easier because it's not your will, it's the will of God, and so you're just uh, inclined to do this. She believes, even while while she writes this is in the introduction, she believes that, that what she's writing, although she's trying to write it for the benefit of her sisters, especially the sisters right there at St. Joseph's where she's at. She she also believes, she's hoping these words will help them praise God more. As far as it benefiting anyone else, she says, whoever believes that this could possibly be of any benefit to anyone else, that's utter nonsense. I'm amused by that because what she deemed to be uh, utter nonsense has been a blessing for everybody. And and so this gets to a, a mysterious thing. You know, saints are probably right most of the time, but they're not always right all the time. They don't write with the infallibility of Holy Scriptures uh, or the um, inerrancy of Holy Scriptures or, or under the Holy Spirit in the same way. And so they can make a mistake in judgment. And here we are hundreds of years later uh, looking at this text We don't believe that it's only for the sisters. We believe it's for us that what she thinks is nonsense for everybody else is precisely what we need to hear today in these times and in the circumstances of our lives. You know, and I love her humility. Because of that humility, it has borne such fruitfulness. And she is the first one to say, well, she actually does say that in the introduction, that I am like a parrot which has learned to talk, only knowing what it has been taught or has heard. She acknowledges those who have taught her prior to that, whether it be a good spiritual director or a homilist or a confessor or those wonderful books that she read and she valued so much. And I think that really is a value to us, isn't it, Anthony? Because it's like when we steep ourselves in things, it's not necessarily that we have something new. Like she says, I don't know what I can offer that's new, but it's not us who offers it. God uses all of that. I don't want to say education, maybe wisdom that has been gleaned from others. He makes it into something that's new. That's right. Does that seem to be what she's expressing here? Yeah, I think that's well put. In here also, uh, probably a couple things as we begin to go into the text. The more you are a friend with Teresa of Avila, the more this text will talk to you. 
And so somebody could say, what do I need to do to be Teresa of Avila's friend? Well, the first thing a friend does is desire what your friend desires. And this is part of the charming part of her personality is that she wins us over to desire all the very best stuff. And one of the things that she desires is to be in complete union with the Roman Catholic Church. Mm -hmm. And so she's writing this in obedience, not defiance, even though there are ecclesiastical authorities who oppose her and think that she's so dangerous. She is writing this out of love for her sisters, hoping that she'll say something that will be of benefit to them. She's writing this out of obedience to the priests who've asked her to provide good instruction and prayer to her community. So if we read this kind of, boy, I want to read like Teresa wrote it. I want to, I want to read this with a heart that's obedient to the Catholic Church. I want to read this with a heart that's kind of given and concerned about other people, what's going on in their lives, that this isn't just about me and and what's good for me, but by learning the language that Teresa of Avila teaches here, I'll be able to say edifying things to support the life of prayer that other people are trying to live as well. And in that, if you kind of approach it that way, Teresa of Avila, you've given her a little bit of ground to draw you along with her through this beautiful journey. When you are approaching this as you would approach a friend, you're going to give her the benefit of the doubt, even though she might not perfectly illustrate all of her points or convince you with her arguments. You'll give her the benefit of the doubt. And when you do, she's able to take you places. And eventually you, you do come into you know, some of those compelling arguments she lays out, but she doesn't lay them out like this is a courtroom or something like that. She lays them out as if she's talking to a friend. So if you listen as a friend, you'll hear that logic of love that comes through this text. Yeah, it really is. I mean, the one who will go ahead and write this out in obedience, even though she's got a headache. Yeah, that's right. (laughs) And just one more note before we really dive into this text. Because of that friendship that she's calling us to with Christ, and as you just said, it kind of, it, it really starts with our friendship with Teresa. When you read this, or you're brought into particularly this work, The Interior Castle, to let her just speak to you the way she would speak. Sometimes I think there are those out there who will try to be an apologetic for her and say, well, she had to be very political in her stance, and that, so that's why she spoke about her extreme humility or her, her unworthiness or different types of things because she was trying to stay out of the, the glare of the church, when in reality, I think she wrote what she wrote, and she submitted it, and there it is. I mean, just, just to take her as we're receiving her. Am I overstating that, Anthony? No, not at all. I think that's right. We don't need to find ulterior motives. She, she's not somebody of ulterior motives. That's why people were drawn to her. When you read this, this is exactly where she's at. I was remiss. I was thinking, you know, I, I said, if you want to be a friend with her, she was writing out of obedience. She wants to be obedient to the Catholic Church. Uh, she's doing this for other people and talked about sharing all those values. But there's there's one more that many commentators absolutely do not get. But if you get this one, you, you've unlocked it. 
Most of all, she loves Jesus. Mm-hmm. If you love Jesus, she wants to be your friend, uh, and she's going to support you and walk with you in that intimacy with him all the way. If Jesus is a nice idea or a subject a remote study for you, she's not going to be as much of a friend for you because she doesn't talk about Jesus in a theoretical, speculative way. He, his presence is very real, very personal, very intimate to her, and has been the healing source of meaning for her whole life. She's drawn to him like a bride to her bridegroom. She wants you to know him too. And so if you approach her most of all with this hunger for Jesus, reading her precisely as you've said, Chris, uh, for her with her own words, taking her at her word, uh, not trying to explain away or calculate or see ulterior motives. Mm. And that's what I mean by approaching her as a friend. Your friend doesn't need to impress you. Your friend's just going to say what your friend thinks. Well, Teresa's just going to tell us what she thinks. And it's okay to go with that and not to read this with the hermeneutic of suspicion all the time. Mm, perfect. And one last footnote, before, again, before we dive in, she will, throughout the course of the interior castle or the mansions, she will reference the way of perfection and the life, her autobiography, occasionally. So that is, again, if you haven't had a chance to enter into the way of perfection or to read her life, uh, that could be very helpful because she does allude to those teachings uh, frequently, don't you think? Yes, she does. And so she's she's uh, writing this, I think it's about 20 years after she wrote the last version of her life. In fact, part of the reason why she is having to write this work is that several versions of her life have been destroyed, uh, and she's waiting for one of the versions to get approved. And so while she's waiting for that, the the other versions to get approved or some new version of her life to get approved so that people can read it again in the reform and get her vision of prayer. Uh, she writes other works like The Way of Perfection and Spiritual Castle has messages of encouragement uh, during this period of persecution. Anthony, I'm looking forward to getting started on the first mansions. But to put a close on this particular episode, this introduction to this spiritual masterwork, any final thoughts? Well, we've kind of laid out the context during the time in which this was written. We've also laid out just a little bit about the character and the kind of person that Teresa is. And we've invited you who are listening to this show to listen to Teresa Vavila's teachings as, um, as if she was speaking to you as a friend. And my thought is if we interpret what was going on all the turmoil about what was going on in her time with the turmoil that's going on in ours, we'll discover that her message has the same force and impact and relevance today that it did then. This is not a teaching about uh, escaping the world around you by going into uh, pursuing interior forms of enlightenment and conscious states and so forth. She'll talk about all of that, but that's not what this is about. This is about getting our interior house in order so that the light of God's love can shine through us and shine in the darkness so that the world might know that the darkness does not overcome the light, uh, that there is hope. This is a, a manual 
this progress in prayer is a manual to bringing hope into the world. Amen. Can't wait to get started. Thank you so much, Anthony. Thank you, Chris. You've been listening to Beginning to Pray with Dr. Anthony Lillis. To hear and or to download this conversation, along with hundreds of other spiritual formation programs, visit discerninghearts.com. There, too, you will find an audio version of The Interior Castle by St. Teresa of Avila, the masterwork in which this series has been based. This has been a production of Discerning Hearts. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. We hope that if this has been helpful for you, that you will first pray for our mission. And if you feel us worthy, consider a charitable donation, which is fully tax-deductible to help support our efforts. But most of all, we hope that you will tell a friend about DiscerningHearts.com and join us next time for Beginning to Pray with Dr. Anthony Lewis.